This week, a love story during the War of 1812, all around the sexiest general of the war, Sir Isaac Brock. Makes sense to me. Now, why do so many of the legends associated with the most famous ghost stories in the world, why do they all tend to center around love, love lost, deranged, one-sided love, etc., etc.? And people have asked me that question many times before. I've always gave the same answers. Like, there's so much emotional energy that surrounds love. And when you go back into history, I mean, it was a much harder time to live, didn't have the same conveniences and comforts that we have today. So for this reason, you know, uh, station in life, uh, sickness, uh, family traditions, you know, many different things that would come together to stop two people who are meant to be, who are fated to be together, would split them apart. No, I mean, there's different sides to whether they're fated to be together, as in AKA soulmates, or if they just, you know, came together out of hardship or personality reasons, or, you know, the guy had a nice butt, whatever the reason is, you know, there was, there was a love, it was lost, sometimes ending in tragedy. So you, you take this emotional energy around it and the more tragic it becomes the higher amount of emotional energy that's released in a certain space, and hence a ghostly legend is born. So for an example of Love Lost, I would think of William Black at the Hermitage Ruins in Ancaster. This is one of the places where we do our ghost walks. It's uh, part of Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. So William Black was a coachman. He falls in love with a woman of station. So he worked for, like his boss was his love's uh, uncle, quote-unquote uncle, uh, but basically father figure. And they fall in love, and you can't have that. You can't have somebody, a woman of station, being with a coachman. So they snuck around. Eventually it was found, and it led to William taking his own life. So now his ghost tends to be around the hermitage. And then you have the other side, it's like a more of a deranged, one-sided love. I give the Dark Lady of the Custom House in Hamilton. So the legend around a young woman who is sent over from England to the New World arrives or is coming towards the, the, the city of Hamilton and has this... It's really open to interpretation what kind of relationship, but with the captain of the ship, it, it could have been obsession... It could have been her one-sided love. It could have been his one-sided lust. But whatever it was, eventually he remembers that he has a wife and children. And this young girl is only in the way. So for this reason, he killed her. Places her body in the basement of the old custom house. And again, a legend is born. Now, even though she wasn't technically... Her life didn't end inside the building it now becomes a catalyst. You know, this This is now her place. This is where she belongs. And for that reason, she remains. So the legend, again, you take it with a grain of salt. I say, I tell all these legends, they're, they're very over-the-top stories. Now, they're, they're usually very interesting stories, but they are very over-the-top. And the reason for that is, is because they've been passed through generations. 
So every generation that goes might add more exuberance to it, might add more exaggeration. And in the end, you end up with something that's very powerful and memorable, but the truth could have got lost along the way. So I always say with a legend, doing the tours, I say legend, you take it with a grain of salt. But back to the original point, if there's even a slight chance that there is some truth to this tragic love story that occurs, then the energy is going to be in the space, especially if it's a secluded location, the hermitage being more of an open field, but there was a house there originally, but the house where the legend took place in is no longer there, so that throws that theory out the window. But at least with the custom house, you have a space that can sop up the energy, the the wood of the structure, you know, being vibrant and energetic and over time over the generations and events occur and then that energy remains and that's why when you walk into a a historic house it feels like it's alive i mean go to any museum go to a place where the house is at least a hundred years old or more and it feels like it's alive i mean there's just a, a there's a feel to it uh, the, the most deranged and terrible haunted houses usually have a anxiety-inducing feel to it. And that's why when you go in, you can never picture yourself living in such a place. So that's why a lot of the haunted houses end up abandoned. But then a lot of historic houses, I can say majority of historic houses, they have a good feel to them, not a bad feel. It's only if something really tragic occurred or multiple tragedies occur. I give Amityville as an example to that that house considered extremely haunted and whenever you believe the stories are true or if they're made up as the conspiracy theories would say then you can state that there was a historic event inside that house with ronnie defeo uh, killing his family in the middle of the night that's the truth that actually happened so a very tragic event that occurred inside that space kind of changed the makeup of the house And then after that, because it's a very public event, now we have the focus of fear, the focus of disgust is placed on this house and it changes the space. So I know it's an open residential house now, people live in there, but it's always going to have this stigma, this energy hanging over top of it. I personally probably wouldn't live in a place like that. Or maybe I would. I, I wouldn't spend the amount of money that they want for it, even though it's very nice. But uh, I'd be hesitant. Let's just say that any location where you know something extremely tragic happened inside and people died, I'd be hesitant to invest in such a place. But for this one, I mean, it's been well invested in is a location in Niagara-on-the-Lake. Now, if you're not familiar, Niagara-on-the-Lake is right beside Niagara Falls. It's a small historic town. It was really the oldest town in all of Ontario, Canada. It was founded by loyalists. This was after the American Revolution. The loyalists come over. They are given free land to stay loyal to the King of England. And so it's founded by them. It's built up after that. Uh, Eventually, you know, going through many different names, including Newark, when it was the capital of Upper Canada, uh, First Parliament of upper of british canada was held there 
uh, and then eventually it would be called Niagara, and finally, so there was no confusion with the falls, called Niagara on the lake, and that's how it is known as today. So for this legend, we go back to the older times. This is going back to the actual war itself, the War of 1812. Now, people from Europe, uh, states, you might not be as familiar with this. It was a smaller war, but from our point of view here in Canada, it was huge because it is the only official war that was ever fought on Canadian soil. So we have something that, you know, where the focal point was to be in the colony of Upper Canada, and I believe it, you know, shot up into into Quebec as well. It was it was important from a historical standpoint to us, and to go back to that time to, to go back to a time of much tension. Now this story centers around a couple figures, of course uh, Sophia Shaw, who I'll come to in a moment, but two large military figures in the history of the War of 1812. Uh, the first one is Aeneas Shaw, who was uh, uh, Sophia's father. And as well, we have Sir Isaac Brock. Now, he is considered the most famous general of the War of 1812, from our side anyway. And even though he died towards the beginning of the war, it is said is his strategies that made it possible for us to push the Americans out of Canada to be able to draw the line and state that this is Canada. Of course, when they got down into the United States, there was like an extra attack on Washington, on New Orleans. Uh, that wasn't very successful. So when, when, when Canadians say that the War of 1812 was in our favor, we're right. When the Americans say that the War of 1812 was in their favor, they're also right. It's just whoever had home field advantage uh, won the battles. So both sides can state that they won on their land. But from our point of view up here, we see Sir Isaac Brock as the main guy. If you ever come up to Niagara Falls, you might have heard of the Brock Monument. That's him. So it's this massive stone that goes way high up in the air, uh, him pointing towards the American side, uh, not giving the finger like people sometimes say, but it's him pointing and underneath the monument is his body. So that's his actual grave that is on Queenston Heights where he died. So he is the figure. Uh, Aeneas Shaw is the other figure. Uh, now, Aeneas Shaw, like when you look at legends, sometimes you can't even point to real people. He's a real person. In fact, I'll come back later. Um, a researcher named Richard Ong, who I've had some dealings with, very smart guy, very uh, great writer, he kind of uncovers this because there's always been question on whether the legend of sobbing Sophia is true. So he actually took the time to look into it, found some very interesting stuff. But I mean, just right from the beginning, you can just do a quick search on Aeneas Shaw and find out that he is a true person. He actually existed. There's a Wikipedia page talking about him. And I just happened to pull it up right here. Uh, by the way, Aeneas is spelled A E N. E-A-S, if you're interested. Shaw is exactly how it sounds. S-H-A-W. And no, the Shaw Festival in Niagara and the Lake is not named after them. It's an interesting coincidence, I think. It's probably a common last name from back in the time. Uh, but the Shaw Festival is actually named after the playwright George Bernard Shaw. There's no relation to anybody locally. Uh, so yeah, Neil Shaw was born in 1740. He was Scottish. 
He's uh, considered a political figure in Upper Canada. He was born in Scotland, uh, came to New York, Staten Island, around 1770. He enlisted in the Queen's Ranger at the start of the American Revolution. Uh, so he remained a loyalist the entire time. He rose to the rank of captain. He was part of the Siege of Yorktown. He settled in New Brunswick for a while. He reformed the Queen's Rangers and moved to Kingston, which is in Ontario. Uh, he was appointed to the Executive Council and Legislative Council of Upper Canada. So a very, very prominent politician. And in the late 1700s, in the 1790s, he moved to Niagara. Now, he was in uh, Niagara. He also helped set up a new capital. So this was when they moved the capital from Niagara on the lake to a town called York. You might know York today. Its, uh, it's new name is Toronto. Not sure if you've heard of it. It's a, a small city. <laughs> Uh, so he was he was part of the setup of this. So he's very um, prominent in that, and we leads all the way up to 1811. That's when the intention the uh, tensions between Britain and the U.S. they start to increase. It's leading to the War of 1812. Uh, during this time, he becomes a major general because of the uh, ma a massive amount of experience that he had, and he was responsible for training all of the new recruits. I mean, really, when it came down to it, uh, a lot of people don't realize this, is that the War of 1812, the year was chosen by the Americans for a really good reason. Uh, go ahead and look up all the major conflicts with Napoleon, you know, the French emperor back in the day. The major conflicts with Napoleon over in Europe were around the exact same time, 1812 being a major year. So I, believe, I think it's quite well known that uh, 1812 was chosen by the Americans because they knew that the British were occupied with fighting Napoleon. So for this reason, they thought it would be the B team that would be located in Upper Canada. And in a way, they were right. I mean, the uh, people who were settling a small colony, it was considered low on the list of things to do when you were fighting for your main country against somebody like Napoleon, who's a very successful leader in his time. So Brock was definitely a team, but they forced him to stay because he was already in the colony. He wanted to go fight Napoleon. He didn't want to stay and lead the troops for the War of 1812. He wanted over there in the main fight, but they forced him. So uh, Brock and uh, Nia Shah, they are experienced, which was probably hard to find back then, and they're kept and they're uh, forced to train the new recruits and try and get the get the W. So uh, the rules were very lax. It says that uh, militias were only required to train for three days a month. I think you're about to fight for your land and it's like, oh, yeah, three days. It's like uh, reserves today. But uh, I assume those three days were really hard pressed. I'm going to say that. Uh, but they say that Shaw's troop did not perform well because he had led them into the Battle of York, and that was an unsuccessful campaign. Uh, at one point, York was taken by the Americans, but this was, uh, I think, all towards the end. So it wasn't really that crucial because eventually things turned into the British favor. Uh, the Battle of Stony Creek and the Battle of Lundy's Lane, to name two of them, which kind of turned the tides of the war. So he died uh, just after the war. I think it was from illness, though. 
I mean, you immediately assume you say, okay, he died in 1814. Well, the War of 1812 is still going on. You're thinking, okay, it's probably because he was shot and killed. No, that's not the case. I'm, I'm almost positive it was because of illness. Uh, surprisingly, they don't mention it on the Wikipedia page. Somebody should add that in. It's not going to be me. I, I, I'm scared of Wikipedia. But Ashley mentions right at the end of the Wikipedia page that uh, Shaw's daughter, Sophia, is said to have been engaged to Major General Isaac Brock. So, I mean, the, the, the legend has some, some claws, even though historians will say it's not true. It has some claws because it can make it onto a Wikipedia page and not be immediately deleted. So there's definitely something to that. So two things I'm going to jump towards here in regards to this amazing love story and legend. The first one is the house. The house itself actually survived the war. Now, if you're not familiar with the history behind Niagara-on-the-Lake, first off, a shameless plug, the ghost walks of Niagara-on-the-Lake are happening every single night up to Halloween starting this month, June of 2023. I will also be leading a good number of them. So if there's if you want to come out and see me do the tour, see one of our other guides, it doesn't really matter. Just go to ghostwalks.com, you click Niagara-on-the-Lake, and you can just book, get details and book through there. It's very easy. But uh, yeah, Brockamore Manor, a little off the beaten path. You can definitely go see it when you're there. It's currently a bed and breakfast that you can stay overnight in as well if you want. But the fact that it survived the war is, is very interesting because not a lot of buildings in that town survived the war. Because when the Americans retreated after the Battle of Stony Creek, there was this effort to slow the British soldiers down. So what do they do is because it's a very cold winter's night, they burned all the structures. They raised the entire town. Now it is said through legends that they left a couple of the wooden structures up so that the townspeople could, you know, squeeze themselves into and hopefully survive. Although unfortunately a lot of them did not. But they also were unable to burn a few other places uh, the first one was the powder magazine in Fort George because it was filled with explosives. They didn't want to blow themselves up. Uh, the second was the McFarland House, which is along the scenic route. Uh, that survived completely because it was the headquarters. They made it an outpost. So for that reason, it, it just they didn't even bother. Plus, it wasn't part of the main town. So I was like, let's just not bother burning it. And the third one was half of Brockamore Manor. Because, as legend states, they set the fire, but the fire then went out. So half of Brockamore did survive. And Brockamore is what's connected directly to the legend. Uh, it was owned by a man named Captain Powell. Powell, I think, had uh, some kind of familial connection or friendship with Aeneas Shaw. And Sophia Shaw was staying with that family. So there's your connection. And Sophia Shaw, it is said, well, at the house, that's when she had the opportunity to meet and fall in love with General Isaac Brock. Now, whether you, you can take the words of the people's beliefs, but then you got the historians who are going to jump in and immediately say, okay, this is a bunch of bold duty, that there's no, <laughs> there's no connection there, that General Isaac Brock never really liked uh, Sophia, or some people will also say that Sophia Shaw thought General Isaac Brock was a uh, quote-unquote brute, and that she didn't like him as well. 
I, I look at the pictures. He doesn't look like a brute to me. So then I, I, I would say from logic, I mean, he looked like a very handsome fellow. So at the end of this, you're going to think I'm obsessed with a guy, which I am, but not in the way that you're thinking, you sickos. But he's like, he's a handsome fellow. And uh, I don't think there's any pictures of Sophia, but, uh, you know, I could see some kind of love blossoming there. And I'm going to come back to the article Richard, uh, Richard Ong wrote, and I'll show you the connections that exist. But uh, so the historians, they shoot down the legend immediately. But I find that a lot of historians I've dealt with in the past, they do that. If there's no obvious evidence, they immediately side with skepticism. And I've never been one. I'm a huge lover of history. I would never call myself a historian. But I've never been one to shoot that stuff down because I always see it as we don't know the whole story. So there's really, you could fall on either side. Yeah, you could, I mean, you can use the logic to break down and say, okay, during that time, this wouldn't have occurred. But that's also possible that it was different. I mean, even today, not everything happens like you would expect it. But sometimes when we look back on history, you're going to immediately assume that what's normal is what's going to occur, but that's not always the case. So really, you could fall on either side with a lot of certain facts, certain pieces of information that were not recorded or recorded by you know sources that weren't really fully trusted. You could fall on either side. So when we talk about ghostly legends, or, or even on the other side, when you're talking about known history, it's always good to keep an open mind. I say that with the belief in ghosts in general. It's like, you know, you don't know. I mean, reality is such a strange thing. And to say that, you know, we're living on a rock in the center of nothingness, surrounded by open space that could kill us if we were up there without any type of equipment. And to say that ghosts are where you draw the line. I mean, reality in itself is the strangest freaking thing ever. Uh, so again, everything is open to interpretation. I say history is as well. So when the skeptical historians shoot down the idea, I love it when somebody like Richard comes along and says, nope, I'm not going to accept the status quo. <laughs> I'm going to actually take the time to try and dig down deep into this and find something. And boy, did he find something. But before I'll go into that, I'm just going to break down the legend for you just so that you get it. I've gone into detail of the legend of Sobbing Sophia in the past on the show, so I'm not going to get too, too detailed. Uh, definitely do a search through the podcast. I'm sure it will come up as Sobbing Sophia. But the legend itself centers around this young lady. Uh, Sir Isaac Brock is in Niagara-on-the-Lake. He's stationed at Fort George. He is there to prepare for the battles that are about to come. So this is very well-known history. This is 100% true. He definitely was in town. But then the connection of him actually going to the Powell house, to Brockamore Manor, and meeting with uh, Powell, meeting with Aeneas Shaw, and then eventually meeting and having uh, falling in love with Sophia, Aeneas' uh, daughter. This is where the question comes into play. I believe it's all possible. We'll try and prove that later. But either way, the legend states that they did fall in love, that they uh, it was kind of like a quick courtship and that there was plans of getting married, of living together, of having children after the war is done. Uh, she was very much in love with the man. He was in love with her. 
and all of this would lead up to a time uh, there's strife with um, Sophia's father Aeneas who loved Brock as a general and was friends with the man but didn't like him as a suitor for his daughter uh, two main reasons that are obvious in my mind is first that he was much older and second that he wasn't of noble blood so the Shahs are of, no, of noble blood, but Brock was not. Famous general, we still talk about him today more than Aeneas Shah, but because he was of a noble blood, you know, the traditions and whatnot, he didn't like them as a suitor for his daughter Sophia. So those two reasons, there was a lot of strife, but it didn't stop the young couple. What stopped them was when Brock was told that the American soldiers were about to arrive in a place known as Queenston Heights. At Queenston Heights, as I mentioned, the location of the Brock Monument. It is a small town, maybe about a 15 minute or so drive from Niagara on the lake, along that beautiful scenic route, goes along the Niagara River. And it's the area where the Niagara Escarpment uh, comes into Niagara Falls. And uh, you got the town at the bottom. This is also where the Laura Seacourt household is. Uh, that's where Laura started her famous trek to go warn the British that the Americans have arrived. So she was from there. Uh, also a wing of the Hamilton family. The city of Hamilton is named after a house called Willowbank. Uh, that is also there. So there's a very historic town. Uh, connections to the rebel William Lyon Mackenzie, his printing press, uh, where he printed his anti-British papers, was also in Queenston Heights. So you see the history of this town goes extremely deep. In some cases, even more than Niagara and Lake itself, and it is much smaller. But the, uh, the Americans were coming in, and because you had the escarpment, whoever took the hill, that's who would have the advantage. So the Americans come in, they try and take the hill, uh, and they were, they were unsuccessful. They failed. The British ended up winning the Battle of Queenston Heights. However... They lost Brock. So Brock is called away from his um, true love, if you believe the legend, Sophia Shaw, uh, taken from her. He dies, and she loses him forever. So that's the legend. And the legend says that she remained uh, a maiden, that she never remarried, and it was because of her broken heart, and then eventually she died uh, never being married, that she was always dedicated to Isaac Brock. So where the truth comes in and surrounds this place, uh, the truth definitely does exist in many aspects and many corners of this legend. The first one I'll talk about is, is there a connection that would have put Isaac Brock inside that house? And yes, it said there was a friendship with Aeneas Shaw that uh, Brock and Shaw were friendly with each other, so that would put him there. As well, there's a connection with um, Powell that uh, would have seen Brock inside that, that house. Um, here, I'll just... I, it, 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 this is what Richard found out. It's uh, two of what they call, I guess, uh, aide-de-camp. They're like um, assistants. Assistants to General Isaac Brock. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel John McDonnell. And a close friend was uh, Captain John Baskerville Glenn. So there's a quote from Walter Nursey, published a book in 1908 about the attachment between Brock and Sophia. Uh, quote, 
Our hero, meaning Brock, made a brief stop without dismounting his horse at the residence of Captain John Powell, the home of Sophia Shaw. He accepted a cup of coffee from her, both fearing that this could be the last time they would be together. So I believe this book in 1908 is the source of the legend. That's what Richard says. So um, this simple quote could have put the idea in the minds of people that the legend did exist. So then uh, he kind of dives into the idea that, well, if this actually occurred, maybe the stories around John McDonnell and John Glenn, Glegg, could actually shine some light on it. And we do definitely get a great source with John McDonnell because he was in love with a woman named Mary Powell. Powell. Yeah, so this was the daughter of the guy who owned Brockmore Manor. So the fact that one of his trusted side aide-de-camps was in love with Mary, uh, and this is very well known, I'll give you an example, uh, just a year before MacDonald died, uh, he wrote a love poem to Mary Powell that began with, Adieu, adieu, and it is so, and I must from sweet Mary go. It's beautiful, isn't it? The guy had a way of words. Look at his face. Go to that uh, article on the Ghost Walks website and look at his face. I mean, that's a very intense and romantic man. Uh, So we know. We know that that connection did actually exist. And who knows, maybe it would have had a, a bigger light shed on it, but McDowell died soon after Brock. So unfortunately, you're not going to get much more information for him. Um, Mary Powell had the same type of tragedy that supposedly Sophia Shaw had, although I don't think it affected her in the same way. So we know that's true. We know there was a connection historically, thanks to Richard, that Brock and Sophia could have met and could have spent time together. And we also know something else is true. She did not marry. She did not marry anyone after the war. She lived a life of uh, dedication towards religion. Uh, and this is, this is a part of written history. So she continues on uh, being very devoted to her religious life. Some could say, oh, devoted to Isaac Brock and her love for him. But I think it's more devoted to helping others. I think that was the idea is that she wanted to help others. The following is from Richard's article. In 1821, Sophia embarked on a new chapter in her life by joining with a small Methodist society. For years after, she attended classes and prayer meetings with uncommon devotion, changing the course of her life. After the marriage of Charlotte Shaw, this is her sister, to a reverend in 1832, she stayed with her sister and new brother-in-law for only 26 years. So (laughs) they very, very much uh, stayed with them for a very long time, most of her life. And then when her uh, sister moved to Halifax, Sophia was appointed as a leader of a group of young women in order to provide guidance through her deep knowledge of the scripture and chosen way of life. She was so dedicated to it. Uh, She was very well loved by these sisters. I assume she was staying with them. And uh, eventually when she left that position, they gave her a beautiful Bible inscribed with a copy of the uh, Wesleyan hymn book. And this is what they would read at her funeral. So it was very closely related to her. 
all the way up to 1858 uh, when uh, the reverend and her sister returned because they needed to take care of Sophia as her health began to fade. Um, her dedication to her faith was tested that she had a lot of pain. She also had nervous breakdowns. And the final six months of her life was spent living back again with her sister Charlotte in Yorkville in Toronto and that her sufferings were very severe. So she didn't have a calm and peaceful end and she died on December 1st of 1870. So that's true history. That is true history proving that Sophia did not remarry afterwards. So you could say maybe it was because of Sir Isaac Brock or maybe it was she had a deep connection with religion and helping others, but either way, the history was true. So two things. First, there is a connection. Second, she did remain um, a maiden, sorry, for lack of a better term, for the rest of her life. So those two things in the legend do remain true. And I'll tell you, with many legends, even having zero type of historic record or historic account, would be the would be the norm so to actually have some some connections here uh, that you can claw into i can see why this legend has taken off so there's only one question that remains i'm sure it's in your mind right now is why did they call her sobbing sophia well i mean the obvious connection is the idea that she had her love lost uh, correction love taken away from her so suddenly it was during the courtship is when love would be at its deepest and then all of a sudden he's gone. Just like that. Very un unfair, very violent, very fearful times. And it was just taken from her. Her entire future was robbed from her, if you believe the legend to be true. So sobbing is obviously connected to her state of mind. And you say, okay, towards the end she had a lot of pain. The pain is probably what caused her nervous breakdowns. Was she always a really emotional person through life? I mean, you can make the case for that. Uh, definitely, you know, she would go to helping others as a, also a roundabout way of helping herself. Psychologically, this makes some sense. But they say sobbing Sophia, mostly just to simplify it, is because of her uh, depression over the fact that she lost her love, Isaac Brock. And the ghost stories surrounding her also surround the town itself. Yeah, sure. I mean, they say that there's been experiences of hearing a woman crying in the room that was once Sophia's room. But as well, people have said they've heard a woman crying in the main town itself along Queen Street. And they attributed both of these to the ghost of Sophia Shaw. So does she remain here? I, I'm going to say it's a little bit general for me. And Richard, he did his own investigation. I know other people have done investigations at Brockamore. Brockamore is open to this idea. If that's something that you're interested in, you know, you can give that a shot. But uh, to say that she's still around, I mean, there's not a lot of proof on that. This is not a, a vivid ghost story. This is not something that constantly happens. It's just a legendary status being that once existed that has been brought over through history as a way to kind of connect you to it to say okay yeah she's still there she's still upset she's still crying over her lost love so is there valid validity to the legend i'm going to say yes i do believe this wholeheartedly is there validity to her ghost still haunting brockamore the town itself i'm going to say no 
I just don't think there's enough stories that keep coming through to say, I mean, if there was a woman randomly crying throughout town, lots of this would be reported. And it would be like, that's a very strange occurrence that shouldn't be happening, but uh, it just doesn't get reported. So for that reason, yeah, legend, yes. Her ghost still being there, I would say probably not. Anyway, that's the show, everyone. Uh, If you enjoy listening to Ghostly History, uh, if you like my voice, hopefully you're not sick of me. (laughs) It's a really quick way to support me. Just leave a review. Apple, Spotify, Google, however you listen, doesn't really matter. You just do the little star rating. If you want to state something as well, maybe a recommendation on how to make the show better, I would be very happy to hear about that. You can also contact me as well. Throw out my email address, ggdaniel at ghostwalks.com. If there's anything you want to add, comments, questions, whatever, uh, just com- uh, contact with me and uh, I'm happy to answer them for you. Anyway, thanks, and I'll talk to you next week.